Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. I have really been looking forward to this conversation today. Rebecca Mezoff is a contemporary tapestry weaver who lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. Her work is widely known and exhibited in various public and private collections, and she is also a much beloved tapestry weaving teacher, working with students both in person and through online learning classes. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Rebecca. Welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. What a nice intro. So I would love to start out by talking about your family roots. It looks like weaving goes back at least several generations. So where did the weaving journey start for you? Yeah. Um, so my paternal grandparents actually were weavers. And um, my grandmother got an art degree when she was 60, 60 years old. But I remember as a little kid, my grandfather weaving on these big looms. He actually was an engineer, but when he retired, he had to have something to do. So um, I definitely was interested in weaving because of them, but I think my parents were actually my main inspiration. They weren't weavers, although my dad knew a lot about weaving, but they were, they're really makers. So my dad has like a letterpress and he's printed books that my sister wrote when she was a kid. And we had a dark room in my basement for a while and he does woodworking. My mom does all kinds of fiber arts and she um, has done painting. So I had like a makery family and that was, um, a great inspiration. But I definitely, when I was a kid, remember watching my grandparents weave. And then they actually moved to the town I grew up in when I was older. So I got even more experience with that. And that town actually was on the edge of the Navajo Indian Reservation in New Mexico. So there was a lot of exposure to Navajo and Hispanic um, tapestry weaving. But um, I actually chose a career in occupational therapy. And um, I had a lot of art classes here and there. But then I learned fabric weaving um, from that interest, you know, from my family, I dove into it when I was living in Reno, Nevada, and the Reno Fiber Guild taught me a ton. Um, but then I started doing double weave, and I was doing double weave pickup, and I was trying to make pictures. And at some point, someone said to me, you know, maybe you'd be interested in tapestry. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, I actually moved home to New Mexico at that point and um, went to a program at Northern New Mexico College to study Rio Grande weaving. And that's where I met James Kohler, who's a was a contemporary tapestry weaver. So that's sort of how I came to weaving. And what was it that intrigued you about tapestry weaving? And why did that stick after you explored so many different kinds? Well, um, I think when I was in Reno and I came home, I just wanted to go. I was interested in tapestry. Um, mostly I wanted to go home. I was not fond of Reno after living there for a while. And I landed at Northern because partly because it was a way out. Um, but I learned acid wool dyeing while I was a student. I had a whole semester class in acid wool dyeing, and that I thought was amazing. I um, was so much about color, and I figured, you know, there's no limits to the colors I can make with this thing. So the other things about, ta and, and that's when I really got my fingers into tapestry, because um, I wove there three days a week. So I worked as an occupational therapist in the public schools, and New Mexico's not a very expensive place to live. so. I would work in the public schools for three days a week, and then I would weave at this in this program for three days a week. And um, I loved that I was creating the ground of the cloth while I was creating an image. And that still is fascinating to mm. me that you're weaving, you know, you're yeah. making something that's a piece of cloth but, cloth, but it also is an image like a piece of art. And um, I also 
like the craftier parts of tapestry weaving, like just beyond the design and all of that. I love the dyeing process. I could do that forever. Um, and I am invested in the expression of ideas, but um, the process of it is really, I'm really a process weaver. Like, you know, when I'm done, it's great. I hang it up, it's pretty and I'll sell it. But the making of it is what's important to me. So um, what I'm doing is traditional tapestry techniques, the kinds of things that have been done for tens of thousands of years. And were done in big workshops in the Middle Ages in Europe, and they're still done in workshops a few places in the um, world now. But um, so the goal for me is to make a piece of fine art. But again, I love the thing that really keeps me doing it is the whole process of it, keeping my fingers in the yarn. Yeah. What was the first tapestry piece that you wove where you felt like you knew the techniques well enough that you were able to convey what was in your mind on your fabric? Oh, gosh, you know, it's such it's such a, it's a little bit of a long process, I think, for tapestry. There's so many techniques. Um, because those pieces I did when I was a student at Northern New Mexico were Rio Grande, like a Hispanic type of um, thing with a lot of angles and very symmetrical pieces. Um, but I didn't really figure out um, sort of my own voice. I think I did a couple pieces that were called Halcyon Days. And I used to be very romantic when I named my pieces. And I thought Halcyon Days was a great name for a piece. But I think there were two of them. And there were both a lot of teal and purple, like, hatched together. Pretty simple design. But that was the point where I sort of um, was playing with color and, and technique. But I felt like, oh, okay, I have a direction now. Um, as opposed to the traditional Hispanic stuff, which um, was a lot of fun. But it was sort of dictated by a tradition that um, wasn't actually part of my heritage. Yeah. So can you tell me what your tapestry design and weaving process is now from the beginning of, of you know, thinking of it and dying all the way through to the end? <laughs> sure. I'll, tr I'll try not to take all day. Let's hear <laughs> it. Talk about that. But um, it, I, for me, the design process can take a really long time. I mean, it, it can be months or years um, just and not in terms of actually working on it, just in terms of giving it time to sit in my head. Um, I do keep a sketchbook and a computer file with different ideas that are usually related to more of a feeling or like um, some kind of a concept and not so much to a specific form. I don't really weave realistic things very often, except some of the little tiny things I do. But most of my large pieces are not um, are quite abstract. So um, it often comes from an event, something that happened or a feeling that I want to sort of try to express in color. And... Um, I, I start sketching ideas and sometimes I'll play with paint and um, or even Photoshop, but I let it roll over for a couple months. Um, and if it's a good design, it'll keep coming back to me. Um, eventually, though, if I think it's something I'm going to use, I like to use tracing paper. I actually really like paper and pencil instead of something like Photoshop. And I like to use... Um, just layers of tracing paper. So I'll draw forms and then I'll keep drawing. And if you layer tracing paper, you can see how those lines interact and move them around. And um, I, that's the design technique I go back to the most. Sometimes I'll, um, you know, make one drawing and scan it into Photoshop and manipulate it that way if I need to speed things up. But um, paper and pencil are a good way to start. Um, so then eventually I get 
a final draft. And I will admit that a lot of my designs are completely in black and white. Um, I tend to think the color in my head and add that sort of as I'm sampling for the dyeing later. So I come up with a final draft of the cartoon and like the, I'm working on a nine by nine foot commission right now, which is big enough that I can't blow up like an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper to nine feet. So I used a digital projector and projected it on the wall to draw a bigger version, which I then scan at FedEx. And then I bring it to a full service coffee shop to have it printed at full size. And then I use that on my loom. I weave most of my pieces on a Harrisville rug loom, which I believe is the best loom for tapestry ever made. <laughs> but it's a low warp countermarch loom. And um, it just is a great piece of equipment. Actually, it was my grandfather's. I should tell you wow, this. It was special. my grandfather's loom. So when he, he used to weave rugs, he wove hundreds of rugs on this loom. I remember this after he, after he retired and he lived um, in the same town as my parents so they could sort of help them out. Um, he wove on the loom and then at some point they had to go to assisted living and they couldn't bring their looms along. And so he gave me that loom and it's still the one I use. Um, but I take the cartoon, I actually trace the cartoon from paper onto acetate, which is a, just a tougher material. And I also weave from the back. So that means I can create the paper cartoon with the, car with the cartoon the right way up, trace it on acetate, which is clear, and flip it over. <laughs> so I've reversed it without having to think about it too much. And then I attach the cartoon under the warp and I mark it, actually mark it on a few feet at a time because I do use the beater on the loom. And so I can't leave the cartoon attached all the time like you can on a horizontal loom. I mean, a vertical loom, sorry, an upright tapestry loom. And then I'll, I'll weave the whole piece. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think there were times in my life when I would weave, like when I was weaving at the college, I'd weave eight hours a day and I never gave it a second thought, but I'm a little older now. So, um, you know, about four hours at a time is pretty good stretch of weaving. And then, um, gosh, when it's all done, which is wonderful, um, it comes off the loom, it gets, um, I, I sew in all my tails, so the backs of my tapestries are also clean. And I make hanging bars and steam it and um, hang it on the wall or send it to the client or wherever it's going. That's great. Thanks for sharing all of that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was really interested to see on your website that you had an experience as an artist in residence at Petrified Forest National Park. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell me more about that and also about the pieces that you created while you were there. Sure, I would love to. That was so much fun. Um, so this was, I think it was November 2016. Um, and that residency, so that was, um, the national parks have artists in residence programs. Some parks have lots of residents and some parks only take a few a year. Some parks don't take any. Really depends on whether they have a space for the artist to work. But this particular um, park is actually close to where I grew up. It's also, it's in Arizona, but it's, it's on the edge of the Navajo Indian Reservation. So it was sort of, there was a big psychological component to going back there and um, turned out to be a really great um, month. I think um, tapestry weavers are often pretty sort of order bound people. I find that we're like numbers people and we like rules and I'm not an exception to that at all. And um, 
I, I sometimes have trouble, you know, loosening up. And so this particular residency was something that really helped me with that um, because it was a month long. And I was staying in this little adobe casita, which was, I don't know, 200 years old or something at, um, at the top of the park. And it was November. And I was actually the only person in the park after the gates were locked at five o'clock. So it was super quiet. The stars were amazing. I sort of had the run of the place. It was pretty cool. Um, no internet. So I spent every day um, hiking in the backcountry. And there's a lot of backcountry in that park. And it's all high desert. I sketched, um, took photos, spent a lot of time like lying on the ground watching the clouds. Just stuff that I normally wouldn't do. And because uh, I, you know, they, we always feel like we don't have enough time to lay on the ground and watch the clouds or the birds. And that's too bad. Um, so make time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so but then at night during that residency, I went back to the little casita and I wove a two by two inch tapestry about something that I had experienced that day. So it took uh, two to three hours every night to weave that little piece. And I actually made myself take it off the loom and finish it because I knew if I brought a pile of unfinished tapestries home that I would never, <laughs> I would never get to them. So they were all pretty much done when at the end of the day. Um, and I didn't really intend them to be anything public, but I started putting them on Instagram. I think because I didn't have a lot of internet there. <laughs> I don't know, I was looking for someone to see what was going on. And um, people really loved them. So I ended up actually putting them together into a finished piece for a show. But um, the practice of doing that, of experiencing the desert and creating a little tiny piece about it every day uh, felt really freeing. Um, It was just something I decided I wasn't going to do. I couldn't sit there and redesign it or stew about it or worry about the colors or anything like that. And I didn't have that many colors with me. I didn't even have that many choices. So I thought that was really a great example of ways to kind of let go of our rules and our blocks about designing and all kinds of stuff by um, just making a whole bunch of little things. So, and I, I usually make huge tapestries that take months or years to complete. Um, So doing a practice like that was really immediate and really um, liberating, I think. So I have continued to do that kind of thing when I can ever since. Has it impacted the way you work on your bigger pieces now? Um, I would say not in terms of a piece as big as the nine foot square piece, But I would say yes in terms of smaller things. Um, You know, if a piece is 18 inches by 46 inches or something like that, that's a much um, smaller commitment. And I think that it does make me more willing to just say, hey, well, let's just try it. And if I don't like it, someone else will like it and buy it and we'll try again. So, yeah, I do do think it has really helped make me less um, judgy about myself and just put stuff out there. That's great. So you do a lot of custom work for clients and I'm curious, what is that process like and how do you go about understanding what they want and helping them to understand your own artistic process and and how it will develop? Well, you said it there. That's the hardest part is understanding what they want and helping them understand how you work. I think both of those things are the most important part of doing a commission. Some of the commissions, the first ones I did were like for friends and family and they were like, oh, just do whatever you want. It's fine. 
those are easy. <laughs> but um, the last two I did were quite large. The one I'm working on now and the one that I finished uh, about a year ago. Um, and it's a process of, those people actually found me via my website. So they saw my work and liked it to start with. So if someone, I mean, that's the starting point is they, the client has to like what it is you've done before, because I can tell you it is not worth weaving a piece that you don't enjoy weaving. So um, finding that space for the big tapestry I'm doing now, the client actually flew me up to see the space and talk, you know, face to face about size. And um, I brought a tapestry along and, you know, feel this, this is what my work is like. This is what my colors are like. And, and then I really, I actually brought my portfolio printed and I went through every tapestry asking for her reaction about them and really making notes about which ones did she like and then asking her why. There were, you know, things like this particular Emergence 4 is a piece I did that has a really orange kind of background and she said it reminded her of Africa or something. And so those kind of comments can, I think, help me figure out whether it's going to be a good fit or not. You don't probably really know in the long run, but you have to make some kind of an educated guess and definitely um, don't let the wish to take a commission overcome um, the little intuition that says, this is not a good fit. So um, yeah, is that a, how's that for us? Yeah, on that? that that's helpful. What's the, yeah. what is one of your favorite pieces that you've ever created? Um, one of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite ones was actually a small one I did, I think in 2012. It was called Cherry Lake, and I keep coming back to this little piece. It actually got into one of the American Tapestry small um, jury shows, and someone that, at, who saw it at the show bought it. But it was, um, I think I love it because it, it's a memory of a place. It's like that thing with the Petrified Forest tapestries. Um, it was I designed it after I took a hike somewhere high in the um, Rockies in Southern Colorado to a place called Cherry Lake and the aspens were changing and they were a brilliant, I mean, they went from gold that aspens do, but there were actually red in the colors. And so this piece is like a blue gradation in the background with like a fading line going across um, the middle of it. And then in the foreground, there's this swooping, shape with um, pick and pick, which makes little vertical lines with a gradation that goes from yellow to red. And um, I really, that idea, of course, came from the, the brilliant um, aspen trees. And I um, honestly think I love it so much because of the memories it brings back about that place. I don't actually know if the tapestry itself is a great tapestry or not but um, when I see the image of it now it brings back the joy of that kind of um, being outside and observing the dance of the trees it sounds really beautiful if you send me a picture of it I can include it in the show notes I will do it so people can see what you're talking about yeah what kind of materials do you like to work with when you're weaving your tapestries I use cotton sane twine for warp and um Warp can be cotton, uh, linen is a traditional warp material for um, art tapestries, or wool also makes a good warp, but I really love the cotton same twine. 
It's made by Bakken's in Sweden, and it um, is slightly stretchy, but super, super strong, and it comes in a bunch of sizes. It also shrinks just a little bit. When I take the piece off the loom and I steam it, it shrinks a little bit, and that tightens everything up and makes it a really beautiful um, fabric. The hand of the fabric is important to me. And then for weft, I love wool. I, wool is the best thing, <laughs> best material in the world. Um, I dye it, and so it dyes really well. And I use the, right now I'm using Harrisville, actually I've been using it for a long time, a singles that Harrisville Designs makes, and they just started offering it to the public, and it's called Harrisville Kohler Singles. I use three or four strands of that together, um, which means that I can change the colors a lot. If you put different colors in that bundle, then they, um, you can shift things. I also use a lot of um, Weaver's Bazaar yarn for weft. That's a company that's in um, England and it's run by two tapestry weavers. So I really, I love the model of their business. They offer a lot of, if you're not a dyer, they offer a lot of gradation in their colors, which is something that tapestry weavers want. And a lot of commercial yarns just don't offer that kind of color change. So yeah, wool and cotton. Love it. Love it. <laughs> so you are also a weaving teacher um, and you teach both online and in person in workshops and in retreats. And I'd love to shift gears a little bit and, and talk about that. Why did you decide to start teaching? Sure. Um, so after my, so I went to that Northern New Mexico college to do the Rio Grande weaving. Um, after that, I was a student and apprentice of James Kohler, who was um, a well-known tapestry, contemporary tapestry weaver in the Southwest. And he lived in Santa Fe. And he, I actually was an apprentice in a studio for three years. So most of what I know, I learned from him. He died in 2011, which ended my apprenticeship. And um, I was actually thrown into teaching because of his death. Someone actually called me shortly after he died to ask if I would teach a class he was scheduled to teach a few months from then at a um, workshop. And at first I was like, I don't think so. But eventually I actually did teach that class. That was the first workshop that I taught, I think. And um, I really loved it. I think there are people who are meant to be teachers and I'm one of those people. My undergraduate degree was in music and I um, focused on piano pedagogy and I wrote an honors thesis, um, which was a piano method for preschoolers. <laughs> and then, um, so I was making curriculum when I was um, in college. And then I became an occupational therapist, which is a profession which also involves a lot of teaching. So I feel like I sort of moved naturally into creating curriculum for tapestry weaving, which is what I really love the most. Um, I started teaching workshops at conferences and then guilds started asking me to teach. But I am um, definitely an introvert and traveling to teach is so exhausting. There are weaving teachers out there who travel, they do, you know, 24 or more um, teaching assignments a year. And I just think they're completely nuts. I could never do it. Um, I love teaching, but the travel is really exhausting. So um, because I was traveling so much, I decided uh, maybe I could cut that down if I put up an online class. So in 2014, I launched my online school and um, it's been super successful. And I do still travel to teach because I think that there's something really important about working with a teacher in person. But um, mostly I hold my own retreats where I can sort of decide where it's going to be and how it's going to 
work out. And then my main focus right now is my online classes. That's great. What do you find that people who are new to tapestry weaving are struggling with most and how do you help them get through those struggles? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I teach a lot of beginners. I really enjoy it. I um, It's thrilling for me to introduce the idea that you can make images in yarn and all the different ways that you can do this. I'm not sure sometimes that I um, get that across very well, that there are so many different ways to, to create an image in tapestry, but I, I think it's rather um, a thrilling thing. But the thing that beginners struggle with um, the most understanding, I think, anyway, I see this over and over again in the online class and in person, is weft tension. We know that the, the warp, it's kind of a strange answer, but. Um, no, it's, I'm interested to hear more. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know that the warp is under tension. That's what a loom is for, is to hold the warp tightly under tension. Um, but the weft, which is the yarn that goes, you know, over and over under the warp to create the weaving also has a certain amount of tension. Me just meaning there's a certain amount of weft that needs to go into that warp to create a, a structured fabric that's going to um, be structurally sound and, and, if you want it to be square, will be square. Um, so the weft has to go over and under each of those warp ends. And if you don't put enough extra weft into the warp to make up for that sort of squiggly up and down it has to do, the warp ends will um, pull together. And that's why you see so many tapestries where the edges are pulled in. But if you put in too much weft, the warp ends will push out. So there's this real dialogue between the warp and the weft in terms of um, those two elements moving against each other. And part of learning tapestry is to figure out what that give and take is and how best to use it to express whatever it is you want to express. Um, and I think, I, and I, I say this to my online students a lot and my in-person students, but they don't listen. <laughs> um, many of them don't listen. I think it takes time to learn this. And I always use the example of Archie Brennan, who was, his apprenticeship at the Dovecot in Scotland was seven years long. He started as a teenager, and that was standard back then in the, must have been the 40s. Um, seven years of training before you're allowed to be independent tapestry weaver. And so you can't learn how to weave tapestry perfectly in a day or two. It just takes a little bit of time. and. Um, I think people forget that when you learn something new, because we're adults, we don't like this, but things can be ugly at first and it's okay. As an adult, we're learning a new motor skill. Um, we still try to, f we're trying to teach our fingers how to, you know, manipulate yarn. And there's all this cognitive stuff. We have to understand, you know, what does weft tension mean and how does an interlock work? And so patience is the thing that I try to get across to new students. It just takes time. What is it like to teach such a tactile skill online? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's occasionally frustrating because there are times where I just can't tell what someone is doing. Most of the time, if they can send me a clear photo, I can figure out what's going on um, in terms of where are they having problems with um, a technique like an interlock or an angle or managing how much weft is going into their warp and all the problems that causes if you don't quite get that right. Um, but there are moments where I'm like, I just, I don't know. 
and I'll make them another video or I'll ask them to make a video. And sometimes you just, you just have to meet somebody in person. For the most part, um, I think photos are adequate and I see the same things over and over and over again that hopefully I can communicate the best way to approach whatever's happening. But um, the questions about like what yarn to use, those are really the hardest because I have a certain set of yarns that I recommend because I know they work. But people, you know, someone in, you know, South Africa or Ireland or somewhere else will come across some yarn I've never heard of and want to know if it works. And they'll send me a picture and I'm like, I don't know, because I can't feel it. If a yarn is really stiff or something, it won't work the same way as a softer yarn. So do you have any guidelines yeah. for helping people figure that out? Like what they should look for in their yarns? Yeah, I think um, for sure you want a yarn that has um, not much bounce. Knitting yarns are are bad for tapestry in general. Most knitting yarns are pretty um, horrific, actually. <laughs> They're beautiful, but they have way too much air in them. I mean, if you're knitting a sweater, you want the yarn to have a lot of air and be fluffy and light. But for tapestry, you kind of want the opposite. You want something that is more tightly spun, that um, isn't going to pack together into a little piece of cardboard, which is what happens with knitting yarns, is that you weave and weave and it all packs together because there's so much air in there, it just squishes. And then it also squishes out sideways. It's just really, really hard to manage. So a yarn that is firmer, that is made for weaving. So um, something like, I mean, the Weaver's Bazaar yarns are made for tapestry weavers. And that's one of the reasons I also recommend that company because I I think they're a great example of something that's firm enough and comes in enough color choices for this work. But other people use things like um, even like cotton embroidery floss. Cotton is hard to work with because it isn't stretchy at all. So wool is sort of an intermediate thing that has a little bit of give, but um, isn't quite as unforgiving as cotton is. Um, a two-ply yarn, a singles yarn, there's lots of different choices. I like to use a, a thin singles yarn and, and blend several of them because I get a lot of color changes. But some people like really graphic work and they only want one color of yarn. And then something as simple as um, Brown Sheep makes a yarn called Lamb's Pride, which actually is not a bad yarn for tapestry because it's, um, it doesn't have much stretch to it and it actually has some mohair, so it's a little bit shiny. Um, but I use... Um, there's a couple other basic yarns, like Harrisville Highland is a pretty decent yarn for tapestry weaving, and um, similar yarns like that, just a two-ply worsted. If you've gone all the way over to Cascade 220, you're a little bit too close to the knitting <laughs> yarn, and uh, if you go all the way over to DMC Cotton Floss, you're a little too close to the <laughs> other end of the spectrum, I guess. That's all very helpful advice. It's, it's a hard question. It's really, um, but yeah, I, I guess I would say also experiment. So if you have a little loom, warp it up at the set you want to use and try a little bit of that yarn and you'll know if you're frustrated with it, that it's probably not the best. Yeah, sure. So if somebody is brand new to tapestry weaving, what are their options for starting to learn from you? Um, let's see. There's, um, there's a couple different ways you could learn from me. One, of course, is to take an online class. Um, I have a couple introductory classes. One is called Weaving Tapestry on Little Looms, and that's I designed that for people who are just sort of 
dipping their toes into tapestry, maybe they have a fairly inexpensive loom and you don't need an expensive loom to weave tapestry, by the way. You can make a really awesome pipe loom for very little money and weave really big things on it. So don't think that you have to have a $10,000 loom to weave tapestry. That's just a little side note there. Um, but the Little Looms class is for you know um, beginners and it's a shorter class. And then I have a big class called Warp and Weft, Learning the Structure of Tapestry, that's a comprehensive online class. And that goes over all the foundational stuff, like how do you weave an interlock and how do you do hatching and um, some design stuff and troubleshooting and um, all of that kind of thing. And I also teach about three retreats a year. So if you want to teach for me and um, learn from me in person, that's a good way to do it. And I list those on my website. Um, the retreats for this year are pretty much full, but um, I have some already going up for next year so you can keep it on your calendar. And I also do remote guild lectures. This is a new thing I've been doing. So um, not so many younger people necessarily are familiar with weaving guilds, but those um, people who have been around a little bit longer, there are groups in most communities called weaving guilds and they like to have programs every month at their meetings. So I do a thing where I have a, a lecture that's um, in video form and they show that during the meeting and then I do a live question and answer session over Skype. So watch your local weaving guilds uh, website. And then I do have, um, I write a blog and I have a YouTube channel and there's a ton of free stuff on, on both of those. So I'm writing a post, um, a series of posts this month about um, a set for weaving, how wide, you know, how your set and your weft go together to um, make a, a sturdy tapestry or a structurally sound tapestry. So, and what images you can create. So that'll be on the blog and um, there's lots of archives there of things you can look back at. Well, Rebecca, I've really enjoyed this conversation and hearing about your journey and, and also how you started and have continued with teaching. Um, before we sign off, I would love if you could share how people can find you on the internet and social media, and also if you have any parting words of wisdom for weavers out there. Of course. Um, my website is tapestryweaving.com, and... I'm on Facebook. Um, Rebecca Mezoff Tapestry Studio is my business page. And I've actually been doing Facebook Lives there lately. So go over there if you want to see what I'm weaving. And Instagram I use quite a lot. And I'm Rebecca Mezoff Tapestry on Instagram. And as far as parting words, I guess I would say um, give yourself the gift of time. I feel like the world is rushing so quickly and... If you could allow yourself some time to just be with the weaving and notice what's happening with each pick and color, there's this curiosity and fascination that can happen when you get absorbed in the tapestry weaving. And it sounds silly until you experience it, but each little micro decision can be pretty thrilling. <laughs> Maybe that's a personal thing, but... Um... And I think that we tend to be, some of us tend to be really judgmental of ourselves. So don't be so judgy. Um, enjoy feeling the yarn. Enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy the process. And your work gets better with practice. Don't worry so much about making it happen. Just be curious and it will come. So that is my advice. That's really beautiful advice. Words to live by. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It was really wonderful. Thank you, Sarah. It was a lot of fun. All righty. Take care. Okay.
That's a wrap. You can find some of the gorgeous tapestries Rebecca talked about, as well as links to her website and social media accounts, in the show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 11. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com slash episode hyphen number 11. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking to Lindsay Campbell, the fiber artist and weaver extraordinaire behind Hello Hydrangea. We had a great conversation about how she found her way to weaving, what it's like to partner with anthropology on a weaving project, and lots more. Tune in next Monday to hear our conversation, and until next time, happy weaving! Happy weaving!